Hello, and welcome to this special episode of Experto Crede, the Minnesota Law Review podcast. I'm your host, Zach Wright, an online editor for Volume 105. On this episode, I am joined by Professor Sunita Patel. Professor Patel is an assistant professor of law at UCLA Law School and the faculty director of the UCLA Veterans Legal Clinic. Her areas of research include police misconduct, civil rights litigation, social movement theory, and the intersection of migrant rights and criminal procedure. Professor Patel and I discuss her article, Jumping Hurdles to Sue the Police, which was published in Volume 104 of the Minnesota Law Review. This episode is being released in conjunction with a special issue published by all law journals in the Twin Cities on policing and diversity issues in response to the murder of George Floyd and the subsequent events. Professor Patel, thank you for joining me today. Great to be here. So something we do quite often on this podcast is kind of start at a higher level and pin down some key terms to sort of situate our listeners in the context of the articles and the the legal topics that we're talking about. So I have two that I want to touch on today. The first is something called a DOJ consent decree. Could you talk a little bit about what a DOJ consent decree is and how it functions? Yes, absolutely. So the DOJ consent decree um, is something that follows section USC, 28 USC section 14141. And it was established um, by President Clinton. Uh, the, the, uh, it was established by Congress during Clinton, President Clinton's administration to allow um, the Attorney General's office and the, the Civil Rights Division of the Attorney General's office to um, investigate and uh, monitor and litigate against law enforcement agencies that were engaged in patterns and practices of civil rights or constitutional violations. And many of those consent decrees today are the ones you've heard of in Ferguson, Missouri, or Baltimore, Maryland. Um, They function as uh, as a very strong tool for federal oversight Um, with regard to discrimination, um, racist practices of police departments, and violence. Okay, so then the second term I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, to start here is Section 1983 Impact Litigation, which you also refer to as Structural Reform Litigation. So I was hoping you could kind of tell me what that is and then how it's different from a DOJ consent decree. So DOJ consent decree can um, sorry, is, is the outcome of um, a process that the Department of Justice initiates. Uh, Section 1983 litigation is litigation that uh, private citizens initiate. Um, the, it, so that's the main distinction is who is bringing the lawsuit or who is bringing the legal claim. Mm-hmm. Um, in structural reform litigation, as I use the term, is referring specifically to litigation that is seeking systemic change, wide, uh, wide scale change within a law enforcement institution, um, and generally is brought uh, on behalf of a class, meaning a, a group of similarly, you know, a, a group of people who are in similar circumstances and harmed in similar ways by policies um, or procedures 
that law enforcement agencies enact. Okay. So at a, at a really high level and maybe crudely put, um, DOJ consent decrees are the federal government kind of being the actor and facilitating some of these processes and section 1983 impact litigation or structural reform litigation is a class of persons who themselves have been harmed trying to rectify and initiate these processes. Is that a fair characterization? It is. And as you can um, imagine that uh, a, a federal government process is really only as strong as um you know, the administration's will to mm-hmm. push forward those cases. Um, whereas a Section 1983 uh, structural reform litigation um, is often pushed forward by lawyers and their clients. And, um, you know, for both of these kinds of cases, the judge that is managing the case is often very important. Gotcha. So. Maybe then in the context of the recent presidential election, uh, DOJ consent decrees might be be changed or how they're being utilized might change given a new administration, but this structural reform litigation pretty much stays the same. Is that right? That's right. And so one of my uh, one of my views is that while we need DOJ consent decrees and fe- the federal government um, process, and I and I think to the point of the recent election, we can certainly uh, expect that a Biden-Harris administration will work to rebuild the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, um, similar to the way that the um, President Obama administration did the same thing. Um, But it's really essential that we not lose sight of of structural form litigation, that other litigants can bring, um, and that we really think about how to entrench the sort of reform project and put it more in the hands of people who are harmed, people who experience the violence of um, of, of police departments themselves, which has been one of the criticisms of even the um, Obama administration's consent decrees, and is also a fair criticism of many of the um, structural reform litigation cases as well. Okay. So I feel like I've already pushed the conversation towards DOJ consent decrees, but what your article is really focusing on is structural reform litigation. And you identify, you know, three hurdles in this structural reform litigation process that these classes of plaintiffs um, have to surpass uh, or meet in order to receive some sort of positive outcome in the litigation. Um, these three hurdles aren't the only hurdles, but they're kind of the three big ones that I picked out from from your piece. So I wanted to talk about them um, one at a time here. So the, the first hurdle uh, is standing to obtain police injunctions. And that comes from a, a Supreme Court case called City of Los Angeles v. Lyons. So I was wondering if you just kind of broadly talk about what exactly that first hurdle standing to obtain police injunctions uh, entails. Great. So just as, just to back up for one quick second, let's think about what standing is. So standing is the idea that the right person or people are asking the court for some form of relief. Um, the, there are, the Supreme court, there's principles in our legal regime that require um, that a court 
only make an take an action for for people who who will be directly um, affected by by the remedy that the court is um, is is ordering. Mm -hmm. And so in a police litigation, this and in in particular in injunctive cases. So injunctive cases are those ones where people in structural reform litigation. It's the it's the situation where someone is asking for the court to do something in the future. It's asking for prospective relief. It's saying the parties are saying stop doing this practice. Stop, um, you know, shooting unarmed black people. Stop. Mm -hmm chokeholds. So it's a sort of a prophylactic relief. It's a forward looking relief. And then sometimes in these injunctive cases, you also ask for the court, for the police departments to take certain steps, do a certain training, do um, reduce, uh, reduce a certain practice, et cetera. And so in the context of lions, which is the first hurdle I talk about, um, you know, you're really presented with three things, the future injury, problem, a speculative harm problem, and an innocence problem. And just to focus a little bit on, I spoke about the future injury a little bit, the speculative harm idea is where the, is, is the idea that the court has said in that case, and in many of these police cases, they say that, well, the likelihood that something's going to happen to this person in the future is very, is speculative. And as a result, the, the person or the class of individuals are considered not to have um, standing. And so in innocence, the innocence um, portion of this is something that I discuss in the paper as a real problem as well. If um, a person like Mr. Lyons is pulled over um, and he, they're interacting with the police officers, the police officers often say that the person is doing an action that's unlawful. And so if the person is doing something that's unlawful, the Supreme Court has said, well, the likelihood that someone's going to do something unlawful again, which would then lead the police to, to stop them or arrest them and do these unlawful actions, these unconstitutional actions, is so slim that we're not going to provide standing. And so for injunctive relief it, for police cases, this has become you know, one of one of the largest hurdles, especially in race cases. Um, you know, some people think about this as the racial standing doctrine. Um, there was a time where people felt that Lyons, uh, right after Lyons, that Lyons was going to prevent these cases from going forward at all. So a very significant hurdle, to say the least, for a class or even a single plaintiff trying to bring one of these suits. Um, okay, so then moving on to the second hurdle, um, is something called municipal liability. And that comes from a case called Monell v. Department of Social Services of New York. Um, so I'll kick it back to you. Could you talk a little bit about this second hurdle you identify? Yes. So whenever you sue a, a municipal um, government, which would be a city or a county or a sheriff's department, um, those cases have are brought under this Monell case, this Monell doctrine. And um, when there's no official policy, and in most circumstances, there's no official policy that someone's challenging. There's no official policy to discriminate against um you know, black people mm -hmm. or Latinx people. So you're looking at an unofficial policy. And in those circumstances, you have to show that the practice is widespread enough to be given the force of law. And um, also that there is enough um, parallel between the facts 
and the the the, the um, prospective policy to warrant liability against the um, the government agency. And then the third hurdle is what you call the class certification hurdle, and it uh, it brought me back to my civil procedure days uh, in first year of law school. And it, it comes from a, a case called Walmart stores v. Dukes. And uh, I, I know you identify a lot of kind of mini hurdles within this larger third hurdle here of class certification. Um, but could you kind of give us a high level sort of overview of what's going on in the, the third hurdle? Sure. So um, this is a very popular case to talk about in a civil procedure class, which is um, would you know, which is interesting. It's great to hear that you're learning about that in your in your pro one. And <laughs> I think the main hurdle here that's important to think about is commonality. Um, there are, there are many requirements to receive um, class certification, but commonality is the one that kind of gets gets most um, most plaintiffs at class most plaintiffs stuck. And so here the court, what they did is they kind of merged um, what I call an early merits inquiry with the class certification process. So class certification is generally brought prior to trial. It's early on in the case because it, it helps to frame the type of discovery and the kind of information you can get from the defendants in order to prove your case. And so what the Supreme Court, Justice Scalia said, Said in Walmart is that some proof of common questions of law and fact are requ- going are, are required, and that it would be okay if some it kind of bled into a um, merits inquiry. And so they they announced a standard and or re- reaffirmed a standard from a prior case that there needed to be significant proof of a general policy of discrimination in order for the class for a class to be certified. And as you can imagine, at your um, for police cases, prior to getting the kinds of extensive data that is often required to make these proof requirements, um, it can it can be a, a significant hurdle. Okay, so we have these three hurdles that we've just talked about uh, that are standing in the way of any potential plaintiff class uh, going through the structural reform litigation process. You identify three specific cases in your article as examples of cases where plaintiffs have actually surpassed and met the standards that these hurdles are asking. And I wanted to run through these three cases in turn, but real quick before we do that, could you just kind of talk about what these three cases might have in common? Sure. So the the three cases that are reviewed in the article have a couple of things in common. One of them is that they all allege um, racial discrimination and 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 bring out a race claim under the Fourteenth Amendment um, Equal Protection Clause, and that's not super common or wasn't common at the time that these cases were brought. Um, and they're, it, it, for all the reasons that we've already discussed, it's very challenging to bring these claims. Um, but, but, they, but these three cases all did, and they were all successful, which is why I decided to you know, take an in-depth look at the evidence that was um, put forward and also sort of what led to, to these claims being brought. And then the second thing that, um, that is a commonality and another reason why I decided to study these cases is that they all have social movement actors initiating the cases. So these are all cases where radical organizations that today 
um, to the extent that they exist today are really within the abolition, abolition horizon, abolitionist framework. All of these organizations came to the civil rights organizations and law firms and said, you know, we really want to use the tool of litigation to further our movement goals. Um, I think that's also really interesting and unique, and one of the things that I um, kind of track and go into in the in the in the paper. Perfect. So we'll kind of run through the facts of each of these cases on the podcast, and then generally talk about the lessons. Um, I just want to note that uh, Professor Patel's piece actually, uh, in writing, goes into the details here, but we're gonna we're gonna stay high level on the facts on the podcast. So I encourage our listeners to seek out the actual article that was published. Uh, last year to get more on those details. But the first case here is Floyd v. City of New York. So what was what was going on in the city of New York here with Floyd? Great. So Floyd in, you know, is a case that went to trial and put the New York Police Department stop and frisk policies and practices on trial. Um, and so that case started actually in 1999 following um, you know, these infamous murders of um, black men and women in New York City at the hands of the street crimes unit. Um, and there was a settlement in 2002 as a result of that first piece of litigation. And then the problem only got worse. And so as a result of the worsening problem, um, litigation was filed a second time. So, but in terms of the general context, we're talking about stop and frisk practices in New York City, um, really that were initiated by, you know, Rudy Giuliani and mm-hmm. Bill Bratton, two, two really important names, um, especially in this administration and in these times. Mm-hmm. And uh, another familiar name in these times is actually uh, in the next case here. So the next case you identify in the piece is Ortega Melendres v. Arpaio. What was going on there? Yeah, so this is a case against the, as you say, the infamous Sheriff Joe Arpaio um, of Phoenix, Arizona, Maricopa County, Arizona. And he um, he was really promoting um, the use of um, human uh, human smuggling unit to go out and round up um, Latino and Latinx um, drivers. And he was using that as a way to push people into um, immigration enforcement for, um, you know, and using street street checkpoints and um, raids um, in in the neighborhoods and in the communities where Latinx folks lived. And then the third case you identify um, is Bailey v. City of Philadelphia, which I believe is pretty similar to Floyd v. New York. Is that right? That's right. It's very similar. It's a, it's a, it's a case against the stop and frisk practices of the city of Philadelphia. Um, and, you know, similar to New York, it is a follow-up to another case. Um, you know, it did not, what's distinct about Bailey is that it didn't go to trial. It's a, it's an interesting case, um, case study into how, uh, you can potentially use litigation and data to um, press forward with settlement without the expense and the time that goes into most structural reform litigation cases. All right. So we have these three hurdles. We have these three cases. Um, what what are the the lessons that 
you know, your, your article pulls from these three cases, which were successful in, in jumping over these hurdles to sue the police. Um, are there, are there common lessons that we can learn and look to moving forward? So I think there's a couple of really interesting lessons and, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to provide a couple of lessons with the caveat that these are, um, you know, are, are general. And I, you know, not to say that these would perfectly map on to some other city or some other circumstance, but given that you had three successful structural reform cases, despite how difficult these um, evidentiary and procedural hurdles are, you know, it's, it's worth thinking about, was there something or, or what, what lended itself to success? So one, one thing I talk about in the paper is the type of evidence that was gathered. Um, all three cases had fairly strong data. Um, you know, some were stronger than others, but there was a component of data that uh, allowed for a statistical expert to um, analyze uh, the reasons behind high rates of stops for Black um, and or Latinx individuals. So whether it was the drivers in uh, the, 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 the drivers in the Arpaio case, or whether it's um, more pedestrian stops in Bailey and Floyd, there was a large volume of data that was aggregated by race um, and geography that allowed for um, analysis in order to prove up a race and for and the Fourth Amendment claim. So that's one thing is the type is it's data. Another piece of evidence that existed in all in at least in um, in Floyd and in um, um, Arpaio, which both went to trial, were these statements by high-level actors that were essentially admissions that the practices that uh, they were the municipalities were engaged in were for the purpose of targeting. Um, in the case of New York City, for targeting um, black people, and in the case of Arpaio, were targeting you know, um, the, the Latino community. And so those kinds of admissions also, you know, very, very difficult to find, um, but they were present in these cases. And one of the points I make in the article is that today with the advent of social media and recordings, we are likely to see more and more of that type of evidence becoming available. Um, another one of the lessons that, that, that I draw from these cases is the importance of um, social movement actors in the fabric of the litigation. So even from the, you know, I spoke a little bit about bringing the cases, but um, the community organizations were also very involved at the discovery phase, you know, determining um, where to investigate information, um, creating a sense of urgency around the, the police practices that led to discovery of further information or the re re revelation of certain witnesses, all of that really uh, sort of played a, played a role in positive fact gathering and evidence collection in the cases. And that wasn't like, um, and, and, and those are not, I guess what I would say is those are things that social movement actors are doing in the background as, you know, as, litigation is a tool. Um, so are so many other things. So it's not as if someone is doing these things 
directly necessarily directly for the purposes of litigation but with all the all all of these different tools kind of work together to bring forward more evidence and more information i think that's a, a great jumping point actually to to kind of move beyond um your article that you published last year and kind of look forward a little bit or at least look to more um, current events here. And the idea in that phrase that you said, you know, courts as a tool or litigation as a tool for these uh, social, you know, movement actors. Um, in, in my head, that that kind of lines up in some ways and might be incongruous in other ways with the the idea of, you know, court reform or things in that, in that sense. Um, I was wondering what you kind of thought about the role of structural reform litigation in an era where court reform is at least in the, in the minds of a decent amount of the public. Yeah. So I think today, um, especially after the murder of George Floyd, but also we can think back, you know, to many, to years ago after um, the, the killing of Mike Brown or even Trayvon Martin, there has been a debate um, over the dominant liberal legal view of court reform and litigation. So, you know, I firmly believe that courts and the legal process will not create wholesale social change. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I've identified in this paper and many others have identified throughout history, courts have been utilized as a tool by social movement actors. Um, now, for me, it seems that that really reflects in some ways societal views around what is possible and what and whether we're in for moments of retrenchment or not. Mm-hmm. And so in the Jumping Hurdles article, I really take a deep dive to look at why and how social movement actors relied on structural reform litigation to move the needle towards a more just society. You know, it was grassroots radical organizations that initiated these cases. Now, whether these same organizations or these same organizers would look to litigation and the courts as a strategy today, I, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Um, And, you know, just to lift up the names of people who've been working on these issues for decades, really, you know, the, the plaintiffs organizations and the plaintiff individual plaintiffs in the cases are, you know, Malcolm X grassroots movement in New York, um, People's Justice Coalition, Puente in Arizona. Um, you know, this, the, the Phoenix case even has, you know, some roots back all the way back to move, um, which is getting mm-hmm. some attention today. And so you can think that these very sophisticated organizers and strategy strategists embrace litigation as a tool um, during, dur- you know, during very difficult times um, and saw them. And I, I think I hopefully I documented documented this uh, fairly in the paper that these these tool the, the litigation was a tool to help to shift power and complement other strategies um, that you know if we think about what's happening today years later led you know created a foundation for running grassroots candidates um, one of the lead organizers for Puente who helped to bring the um, and so Arizona who helped to bring the Arpaio cases now a member of city council um, in Phoenix and so you can see some of the seeds of these things being planted 
Um, not that the litigation led to these wins necessarily, but 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 there are these um, kernels that you can see how how things kind of connect up together. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, something I was really curious about to, to hear from you after I read your article and you know prepared for this conversation was it, it, the article identifies these hurdles. And, you know, looking forward, you, you would, I would think plaintiffs would be planning for these hurdles, but also how you identify these social, you know, movement actors as kind of, they're, they're essentially operating outside of this litigation idea and they're kind of falling into it in times of retrenchment as a tool. Are there movements within these social movement actor camps to try to change some of these hurdles or try to refine structural reform litigation or is, or is structural reform litigation thought of mostly as kind of the standalone tool, or is it something that at least in, in your opinion, is could be changed or modified to better help these, these Mm -hmm. movements? You know, that's, that's very interesting. There's, there is a hot debate right now around this exact question. You have some organizations who are really pressing for things like reform of um, qualified immunity, for example, and it looks like that might have some success. And so changing qualified immunity would make it easier for litigants to bring damages actions. So actions where you're where you're looking for money um, as a redress for the harm. And I think I think that's a really important strategy and it's a really important um, objective. Um, Yet it's you know we 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 can all acknowledge that it's it's a very small piece of a much larger problem, and so whether or not um, structural reform litigation can really capture and embrace what today's social movements want, and I should say the social movements that I'm that I'm thinking about are are mostly black led, um, and come from the what I what I think of as epistemic knowledge and epistemic experience and expertise of what it's like to be surveilled, stopped, arrested and abused by police and killed by police. And so that expertise and that knowledge is um, unfortunately, it's, it's very difficult for litigation and courts to capture it. And so one of the things that I'm looking at in in a follow-up project is the remedies that are possible in this type of litigation against police. You know, how can class members create and develop um, uh, strategies in the remedies process to kind of subvert the dominant hierarchies and the power structures that policing entrench. And so all of the, you know, Floyd and even the Arpaio case to a certain extent, you know, tried to incorporate class members and the grassroots organizers in the creation of remedies. So what will the court actually require the police department to do? Um, And you see this also in the Department of Justice consent decrees during the Obama administration. There was a embracing of the idea of community engagement where there were these advisory boards that were created to um, support uh, and re- help help bring ideas to the court and to the experts that the court um, had hired to help um, in, in, de- develop remedies and reforms for the police departments. And mostly, whether we're talking about Section 1983 cases or DOJ cases, 
the community organizations and the grassroots organizations have felt um, sidelined and um, have found those processes to be very difficult and time consuming. And this is even in circumstances such as Floyd, where um, organizers were really involved in every step of the way and where the lawyers you know, there's in the court records, you can see lawyers really fighting and pushing judges to embrace the ideas of um, of the class members and of grassroots organizations. So, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to that project where we're looking at, like, can structural reform remedies, um, can they embrace what it is that uh, these organizations that brought the cases forward in the first place, can mm-hmm. they actually um, do achieve the goals of the social movement actors? I'm happy you brought up the the remedies piece because, you know, something that I was thinking about earlier when you were talking about Floyd and how, um, you know, today's Floyd litigation actually started in, you know, the late nineties and is this today's iteration stems from, you know, this, the, the, police not uh, abiding by either the court order or the result of the initial litigation uh, makes me wonder how, you know, enforceable certain remedies are that might be obtained in structural reform litigation. Um, Do you have any thoughts on that? Mm, It's a very tricky question, but I would say that, you know, an order is as good as the enforcers. And so we can see in the DOJ context, um, with the Trump administration, there was hostility towards the consent decrees, um, hostility and outright, you know, uh, statements that the consent decrees were anti-police and made policing work more difficult, um, et cetera. And so, you know, a lot of this has to do with normative viewpoint. And, um, you know, for the most part, judges, I believe at least that there is a role for courts to play in um, preventing, you know, in upholding constitutional law principles and principles of um, of of racial equity. Now, whether judges feel that they can do that, whether the doctrine upholds um, you know, my view of what that looks like, you know, is a, is a different matter. And I think that's where it's you have social movements. And today, you know, I think lawyers, advocates, reformists are all trying to think through what does that look like and what are the levers of change? Absolutely. Litigation is still an important tool. I think we cannot throw out any tools at the same time. It's essential that the tools are used in order to press forward, you know, a change in a change in the, in a broader power structure and a power shifting, which is the way I I talk about it in um, a prior article. And I think that's where, where we need to look, what, where can that happen and how does it happen? Professor Patel, thank you so much for joining me today. The Experto Crede podcast is the official podcast of the Minnesota Law Review, a student-run law review published by students at the University of Minnesota Law School. 
for current and past issues, and for more information, visit minnesotalawreview.org. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota, the University of Minnesota Law School, or the Minnesota Law Review. None of the content should be considered legal advice.